Chapter Fourteen of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: The Court of Lions. The peculiar charm of this old dreamy palace is its power of calling up vague reveries and picturings of the past, and thus clothing naked realities with the illusions of the memory and the imagination. As I delight to walk in these vain shadows, I am prone to seek those parts of the Alhambra which are most favourable to this phantasmagoria of the mind, and none are more so than the Court of Lions and its surrounding halls. Here the hand of time has fallen the lightest, and the traces of Moorish elegance and splendor exist in almost their original brilliancy. Earthquakes have shaken the foundations of this pile, and rent its rudest towers. Yet see, not one of those slender columns has been displaced, not an arch of that light and fragile colonnade has given way and all the fairy fretwork of these domes apparently as unsubstantial as the crystal fabrics of a morning's frost yet exist after the lapse of centuries almost as fresh as if from the hand of the moslem artist i write in the midst of these mementos of the past in the fresh hour of early morning in the fated hall of the abencerrajas the blood-stained fountain, the legendary monument of their massacre, is before me. The lofty jet almost casts its dew upon my paper. How difficult to reconcile the ancient tale of violence and blood with the gentle and peaceful scene around. Everything here appears calculated to inspire kind and happy feelings, for everything is delicate and beautiful the very light falls tenderly from above through the lantern of a dome tinted and wrought as if by fairy hands through the ample and fretted arch of the portal i behold the court of lions with brilliant sunshine gleaming along its colonnades and sparkling in its fountains the lively swallow dives into the court and then surging upwards darts away twittering over the roof the busy bee toils humming among the flower-beds, and painted butterflies hover from plant to plant, and flutter up, and sport with each other in the sunny air. It needs but a slight exertion of the fancy to picture some pensive beauty of the harem loitering in these secluded haunts of oriental luxury. He, however, who would behold this scene under an aspect more in unison with its fortunes, let him come when the shadows of evening temper the brightness of the court, and throw a gloom into the surrounding halls, then nothing can be more serenely melancholy, or more in harmony with the tale of departed grandeur. At such times I am apt to seek the Hall of Justice, whose deep shadowy arcades extend across the upper end of the court. Here were performed, in presence of Ferdinand and Isabella, and their triumphant court, the pompous ceremonies of high mass on taking possession of the Alhambra. The very cross is still to be seen upon the wall, 
where the altar was erected and where officiated the grand cardinal of spain and others of the highest religious dignitaries of the land i picture to myself the scene when this place was filled with the conquering host that mixture of mitred prelate and shorn monk and steel-clad knight and silken courtier when crosses and croziers and religious standards were mingled with proud armorial ensigns and the banners of the haughty chiefs of spain and flaunted in triumph through these moslem halls i picture to myself columbus the future discoverer of a world taking his modest stand in a remote corner the humble and neglected spectator of the pageant i see in imagination the catholic sovereigns prostrating themselves before the altar and pouring forth thanks for their victory while the vaults resound with sacred minstrelsy and the deep-toned te deum the transient illusion is over the pageant melts from the fancy monarch priest and warrior return into oblivion with the poor moslems over whom they exulted the hall of their triumph is waste and desolate the bat flits about its twilight vaults and the owl hoots from the neighboring tower of comares the court of the lions has also its share of supernatural legends i have already mentioned the belief in the murmuring of voices and clanking of chains made at night by the spirits of the murdered abencerrajas mateo jimenez a few evenings since at one of the gatherings in dame antonia's apartment related a fact which happened within the knowledge of his grandfather the legendary tailor there was an invalid soldier who had charge of the alhambra to show it to strangers as he was one evening about twilight passing through the court of lions he heard footsteps in the hall of the abencerrajas supposing some loungers to be lingering there he advanced to attend upon them when to his astonishment he beheld four moors richly dressed with gilded cerases and scimitars and poignards glittering with precious stones they were walking to and fro with solemn pace but paused and beckoned to him the old soldier however took to flight and could never afterwards be prevailed upon to enter the alhambra thus it is that men sometimes turn their backs upon fortune for it is the firm opinion of mateo that the moors intended to reveal the place where their treasures lay buried a successor to the invalid soldier was more knowing he came to the alhambra poor but at the end of a year went off to malaga bought horses set up a carriage and still lives there one of the richest as well as oldest men of the place all which mateo sagely surmises was in consequence of his finding out the golden secret of these phantom moors on entering the court of the lions a few evenings since i was startled at beholding a turbaned moor quietly seated near the fountain it seemed for a moment as if one of the stories of mateo jimenez were realized and some ancient inhabitant of the alhambra had broken the spell of centuries and become visible it proved however to be a mere ordinary mortal 
a native of Tetuan in Barbary, who had a shop in the Zacatin of Granada, where he sold rhubarb, trinkets, and perfumes. As he spoke Spanish fluently, I was enabled to hold conversation with him, and found him shrewd and intelligent. He told me that he came up the hill occasionally in the summer to pass a part of the day in the Alhambra, which reminded him of the old palaces in Barbary, which were built and adorned in similar style, though with less magnificence. As we walked about the palace, he pointed out several of the Arabic inscriptions as possessing much poetic beauty. Ah, senor, said he, when the Moors held Granada, they were a gayer people than they are nowadays. They thought only of love, of music, and of poetry. They made stanzas upon every occasion, and set them all to music. He who could make the best verses, and she who had the most tuneful voice, might be sure of favor and preferment. In those days, if anyone asked for bread, the reply was, Make me a couplet, and the poorest beggar, if he begged in rhyme, would often be rewarded with a piece of gold. And uh, is the popular feeling for poetry, said I, entirely lost among you? By no means, senor. The people of Barbary, even those of the lower classes, still make couplets, and good ones too, as in the old time. But talent is not rewarded as it was then. The rich prefer the jingle of their gold to the sound of poetry or music. As he was talking, his eye caught one of the inscriptions that foretold perpetuity to the power and glory of the Moslem monarchs, the masters of the pile. He shook his head and shrugged his shoulders as he interpreted it. Such might have been the case, said he. The Moslems might still have been reigning in the Alhambra, had not Boabdil been a traitor and given up his capital to the Christians the Spanish monarchs would never have been able to conquer it by open force. I endeavored to vindicate the memory of the unlucky Boabdil from this aspersion, and to show that the dissensions which led to the downfall of the Moorish throne originated in the cruelty of his tiger-hearted father, but the Moor would admit of no palliation. Abdul Hassan, said he, might have been cruel, but he was brave vigilant and patriotic. Had he been properly seconded, Granada would still have been ours. But his son Boabdil thwarted his plans, crippled his power, sowed treason in his palace, and dissension in his camp. May the curse of God light upon him for his treachery. With these words the Moor left the Alhambra. The indignation of my turbaned companion agrees with an anecdote related by a friend, who, in the course of a tour in Barbary, had an interview with the Pasha of Tetuan. The Moorish governor was particular in his inquiries about the soil, the climate and resources of Spain, and especially concerning the favored regions of Andalusia, the delights of Granada, and the remains of its royal palace. The replies awakened at those fond recollections, so deeply cherished by the Moors, of the power and splendor of their ancient empire in Spain. 
Turning to his Moslem attendants, the Pasha stroked his beard, and broke forth in passionate lamentations that such a sceptre should have fallen from the sway of true believers. He consoled himself, however, with the persuasion that the power and prosperity of the Spanish nation were on the decline, that a time would come when the Moors would reconquer their rightful domains, and that the day was, perhaps, not far distant, when Mohammedan worship would again be offered up in the mosque of Cordova, and a Mohammedan prince sit on his throne in the Alhambra. Such is the general aspiration and belief among the Moors of Barbary, who consider Spain, and especially Andalusia, their rightful heritage, of which they have been despoiled by treachery and violence. These ideas are fostered and perpetuated by the descendants of the exiled Moors of Granada, scattered among the cities of Barbary. Several of these reside in Tetuan, preserving their ancient names, such as Piez and Medina, and refraining from intermarriage with any families who cannot claim the same high origin. Their vaunted lineage is regarded with a degree of popular deference rarely shown in Mohammedan communities to any hereditary distinction except in the royal line. These families, it is said, continue to sigh after the terrestrial paradise of their ancestors, and to put up prayers in their mosques on Fridays, imploring Allah to hasten the time when Granada shall be restored to the faithful, an event to which they look forward as fondly and confidently as did the Christian crusaders to the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre. Nay, it is added, that some of them retain the ancient maps and deeds of the estates and gardens of their ancestors at Granada, and even the keys of the houses, holding them as evidences of their hereditary claims to be produced at the anticipated day of restoration. End of chapter 14